Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Solar Cast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 25th, 2018, and this is show number 707. Last week, I forgot to tell you that I got to be a guest on Mac OS Ken. I don't know if you guys listen to the show, but he normally does a daily news show. But this uh, last week, he was taking a bit of a holiday from the news and did a series of interviews with different guests. He talked to Adam Christensen, Jeff Gamut, me, and Chuck Joyner. And yes, Chuck was after me. Anyway, it was really fun to have the tables turned and actually be interviewed by somebody else. The show was uh, the show aired on the 14th of November, and I got to tell you, he doesn't make it easy to find a specific episode, so I put a link in the show notes to the specific episode, but I got to tell you, it's, it's such a great podcast, you really should just subscribe to the entire show. Look for Mac OS Ken in your podcatcher of choice. Then this week, I had the pleasure of being on Clockwise again with Dan Morin, Micah Sargent, and guest Jeff Carlson. We talked about iOS's discoverability problem. We talked about when we buy gear for ourselves versus other people, what our holiday support tasks are, and using an iPad as an external display for a Mac. Bet you can guess which topic was mine. Anyway, I always have a blast on the clockwise uh, on clockwise with those folks. They're just they're just fantastic. They're so much fun, and it's a crisp show that's always exactly thirty minutes. And I got to tell you, this was no exception. I had a blast with all of them. You can check it out at uh, relay.fm/clockwise in episode number two hundred sixty eight. But just like with Mac OS Ken, you probably just want to subscribe to Clockwise in your podcatcher of choice. Last week, I got a lovely comment on the blog about a tutorial that I created ages and ages ago. I'd like to read the lovely comment to you, and then I'll explain in more detail what it's all about. I don't know who wrote it, but Anonymous said, Just wanted to let you know that the blog post on creating address labels from the Mac address book continues to be my go-to every holiday season, and it's the best one I've found so far. It actually makes sense and has screenshots, etc. that are helpful. Even though it still takes me several hours to clean up the list each year, your post still saves me hours of frustration. Well, like I said, I don't know who wrote it, but thank you so much. You made my day with that. I don't even remember when the original tutorials were written. They're set as uh, WordPress pages, so they don't actually have dates on them. I've always wanted to figure out how to do it. It drives me nuts that I don't know what the dates are. But anyway, I can tell you, I use these same posts myself every single year to make my labels for my holiday cards. The blog post points to two different tutorials. The first is how to create address labels for Mac OS contacts. It uh, kind of asks, walks you through how to organize your contacts and then print them onto individual labels with a cute little holly icon. You don't have to put Holly. You can put whatever you, whatever you want. But anyway, it shows you how to do that. I love this tutorial because I walk you through how you're going to mess it all up and how to get yourself out of the mess. I wrote it that way because I always seem to forget a step or two unless I'm paying super close attention to my own instructions. And of course, I don't pay attention myself. So, I, you know, it's not hard. It's just really easy to skip a step and end up with the wrong thing. So I show you how you're going to do it wrong. And then I show you how to do it right. The second tutorial is called How to Create Return Address Labels Using Apple Contacts. Now, you'd think this would be easier because it's going to be your name on every sticker, but it's actually really easy to accidentally print just one label. And at the cost of these little stickers, it's heartbreaking if you accidentally do that. Again, it's not hard to do it right, but it's easy to do it wrong. So I show you where all of the minefields are. 
I love these little tutorials because every year I go visit my friend Doreen and we create her address levels, labels, I should say, using these tutorials. After all these years we've been doing it, we're sure she could do it herself, but it gives us a great excuse to get together, have a, co- a cup of coffee, and kind of catch up and gossip about things. Anyway, her husband Keith thinks we're nuts to do the same thing every year, but we love it. If you'd like to make cute address labels and return labels that are all your own design, check out the link in the show notes to Make Holiday Card Address Labels with Mac OS Contacts. Well, Bart and I postponed programming by stealth this week so I could have a more relaxing holiday. To be honest, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to do my homework for class and find time to record with him and create the NoSillaCast in which was essentially one full day at home before the show would come out. I was home on Monday and that was it. Anyway, uh, I I guess you're going to figure out that that excuse is a little bit thin because I just finished telling you I had time to be on the Clockwise podcast. But anyway... The good news is that Bart graciously offered to do an out-of-band security bits, so we have that this week, along with a short discussion with me on a security topic that I'll play right now. I've asked Bart to come on here to talk to us just for a minute about something that I heard Dave Hamilton say. Well, welcome to the show for the little segment, Bart. Hello. (laughs) Um, Dave Hamilton was at the Mac Tech Conference, and he was talking on the Mac Geek Gab about something he learned, and I thought it was really interesting, and I wanted to kind of get your take on it. Mm -hmm. He said that the T2 chip in the newer Macs uh, encrypt the data on your SSD in your Mac um, in in the with the T2 chip, and because of that, it means that that drive can't actually be pulled out and put into a different computer. And in fact, if your motherboard dies, that drive is now gibberish. You won't be able to get the data back on that. And and I thought maybe you could explain what's going on there and why that's so. Yeah, is it a bad thing? It's not a bad thing because it actually means you have genuine security. But it's just not what we're used to for a Mac. So we already have devices that behave exactly like this and have had for quite some time now. They're called iOS devices. But since we're not used to ripping the hard drive out of an iPhone or an iPad, it doesn't really bother us, right? If they go wrong, we go back into Apple, we get a new one, and we restore from our iCloud backup and we carry on with life. Well, that's how your Mac is going to be now. And you'll notice that none of those drives are user replaceable because they're not even drives, right? They're... They're little chips soldered straight onto the motherboard, right? <laughs> you know, they, they really are giant, big, very powerful iPads more than they are Macs. Hmm. So, so what's actually happening, right? So in real time, as you're writing data to the disk, you're not actually writing straight to the disk. Everything goes through that T2 chip. And that T2 chip has actual hardware circuitry that does the cryptography. And so the T2 chip manages the keys, and so the T2 chip is basically like a secure enclave in iOS. You can put a key in, but you can never get a key out again. So the private key is unrecoverable from that chip by design, otherwise it wouldn't be a security device. And so that private key is being used to encrypt all of the data that flows through the chip, and the only way to get to or from that solid-state storage is through that chip. So if that chip goes away, the encryption key is gone. No encryption key... Well, by definition, the job of encryption is to turn data into pseudo-random noise. Well, if the key is gone, you're now left with pseudo-random noise. So so d- does that mean you don't need uh, File Vault? Yes. Uh, well, to some extent it does, I guess. Um, 
need to have a little bit more of a think about that because file vault may give you some other stuff but uh in terms of someone taking your mac desoldering the storage and trying to read it they wouldn't get anywhere so okay that is definitely something you get even without using file vault that you wouldn't have gotten before now maybe file vault gives you something else well file vault means that if you turn on that computer so you don't take the disk out you turn on that computer, you then have to log in before you get by the BIOS. Whereas if you right. don't turn on File Vault, as long as the drive is in the computer, it'll decrypt. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, because you just turn it on and you log straight in, so there it is. But that's also why people like iFixit don't like the T2 chip, because that added security comes with the price that the, the, the drive and the motherboard are cryptographically paired. And you can't do yeah. that. You can't redo that pairing, because if you could, there would be no security there. So, you know, we are heading towards a world where our Macs are basically application consoles, (laughs) right? They're extremely powerful, extremely secure, special purpose computers. And I don't see that as the end of the world, right? Because SSDs fail, though. Yes. That's a a big... You should buy Apple Care. <laughs> but you always really? should any, right? But the, the thing is, hard drives fail too, right? This is right. You know, you, if you, it used to be a hundred dollar repair, now it's going to be a thousand dollar repair. I'd have to check Apple's prices. I'm not sure that's necessarily strictly true. A logic board? Okay, but yeah, that's assuming. Okay, board. but if your logic board died before, your logic board would also have cost the same. No, but I'm saying if the SSD dies. You don't have to replace. Board has to be replaced. I don't believe so. Well, well, you just have to repair not? it. Apple would have to put a new SSD, in, and Apple have the ability to repair. Uh, I- can pair a new not not repair, but pair a new SSD to the logic board. Yes, exactly, because they okay. have the private okay. keys to make all the crypto go. Right, Apple. Okay. I do think I heard the the. Um, and the iFixit guy was on uh, triangulation, and I think he said that if you have the software to do that that pairing, you can replace it. Yes, and it's not just Apple; it's also Apple authorized retailers. I mean, one of the things that makes you an Apple authorized person is that you have access to these tools. So it's the same as replacing the home button on an iPhone with Touch ID. Only an Apple authorized reseller can do it because only an Apple authorized reseller has access to the device for doing the cryptographic pairing between that phone's motherboard and that new home button. Right, 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 right. So all this, basically, you need to start thinking about your Macs as big iPhones. Hmm. And it does, well, you should always have been backing up anyway. Yeah, and Apple make that really spectacularly now. easy. Uh, I don't know. I think, like, if you plug any vague sort of a drive anywhere near the thing, it starts to go, please, 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 can I back up, can I back up? Yes, that is correct. And then, like, three months down the road, it goes, oh, you know what? <sighs> Sorry, I totally forgot to be doing that. And um, so can you just start over because I got all borked up? That to seems to happen to... Right? No, it doesn't happen to everybody. It hasn't happened to me in years. I have Time Machine going on three max for years without an issue. I've just tried it once recently, and it happened a couple of months in. Um, I, you know what? This might be a case of um, a long time ago, my father said he would never get contact lenses. And I said, why? And he said, because I always see people messing with their contact lenses in the bathroom. 
And I thought, but dad, that's the only time you know they have contact, contact lenses. lenses Yes. Right, so it might be that that point oh one percent of the people have had uh, a time machine fail on them, and but I only know about it because those are the only people who ever talk about it. Yeah, Maybe I'll do a poll in our Slack group. How many people have had a time machine backup come on and go? Yeah, you know what? You really need to start over. I mean, I won't say it never happens, but it, it, I can't remember the last time it happened to one of my Macs. I have mine all backing up to my NAS here at home, and it just just happens. You know, I look at my menu bar and the little clock is spinning around. It's like, oh, good, you're doing your thing. I've had Steve's mom fail on me several times. Uh, Yeah, I normally don't do Time Machine at all. I tried it and it failed on me, so I didn't set it up again. Uh, But I I went to her house one time and I said, oh, let me just check your Time Machine. And it hadn't run in like three or four months. And her backup drive was plugged in. And she's pretty good about saying, hey, Allison, there's a notification. What does this mean? So uh, I don't know. Maybe you're just really lucky or maybe I'm only paying attention to people who've had the problem. Or maybe it's gotten better over time. Yeah, my failure was very, very recently. It was in the last uh, six months or so. So, Do you exclu- exclude the folder where you have constantly changing giant big multi-gigabyte files? No, because that's what I want backed up. You don't want that <laughs> stuff backed up instantly. That's impossible. That's just going to screw everything up. Like if there's well, gigabytes that's what I care in- about. <laughs> right, but you don't want that backed up in real time every change you make. As you're, yeah. as you're editing the show, that's an impossible ask. That's just like, that's an insane... No, I can ask it as much as I want. Oh, <laughs> unreasonable. Techn- technically infeasible. Okay, then I don't need... Then it's a bad tool for me. <laughs> I have a folder called Temp where I do the massive big podcasty stuff, but it saves my bacon for everything else I do. I mean, it's constantly saving my bacon because it turns out when I did a nuke and pave, I may have very slightly forgotten about a certain folder in my home drive called Movies, which contains all of my Final Cut stuff ever. <laughs> yeah, thankfully Time Machine had it because I didn't have well, it I would have had it on my clone backup. Though. Yeah, I kept I my clone backup clone for four weeks. Too. It's now been five weeks. Uh, yeah, when I do a nuke and pave, that goes into cold storage. That 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 gets a seal on it, and it says this is that date, and it goes away. And I I, I make sure my final clone backup is on a disc I could afford to to never use again. I used to do that, but unfortunately, they, I did three new pays at the same time, and oh, money's really tight at the moment. And I was like, nope. I either have no current backups or no past backups. Yeah, I'll have some current backups. <laughs> I think so. Well, this is this has been interesting. So, uh, yeah, backup, especially if you have a T two chip, because uh, yeah, you you lose that drive, your your SOL, right? Yeah, or, and I mean, you lose the motherboard, your SOL. Yeah, and do remember the amount of security that T two chip is giving you, right? It it is swings and roundabouts, but it is the reason that it is possible to security have biometrics on your laptop. It is the reason that you have really good hardware encryption on your laptop. It's it's a very nice piece of tech to see in consumer laptops. So, yes, it does mean that if if your drive goes, you need to go to Apple with it. But it's it's not for nothing, right? And anyone who you hear saying it's designed to to lock you in and to stop you getting repairs from third parties, that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. But Might be a true side effect, but yeah, side effect exactly. Whereas people are pretending it's Apple's intention. It's like. Wow, that 
that takes that takes some clickbaiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so too. Well, good. Then, well, thanks for coming in on uh, on that. Uh, Bert may or may not come back with a, a deeper view of that as he uh, learns more about what the T two chip is doing. But uh, which I think would be super fun. More more dive on that. I think is really interesting. But I appreciate you coming on and uh, just giving us us a little lowdown on that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's, um, as there was a little bit of coffee left in my cup after we recorded security bits, and you had an idea. So, hey, it's fun. <laughs> All right, now they heard it out of order. They're going to be so confused, Bart. <laughs> time travel, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Woo. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to just have you say bye for now because you'll be back in just a few minutes. Okie dokie, TTFN. Next up, we've got a guest recording from Troy Shimkus that I think you're really going to enjoy. He's got a whole list of topics he wants to record, which I think is awesome. I love his voice. I love his enthusiasm. I think it's going to be really fun. Anyway, he recorded this segment last week, but I saved it. So you're going to hear him refer to something that might happen before Thanksgiving, but I don't know if it happened. Anyway, let's listen to Troy. Hello, fellow castaways. This is Troy Shimkus coming to you from sunny and warm Florida this lovely winter season. So for the last several months, I've been trying to rework my workflows in regards to equipment choices. As a result of a story I won't recount here, I lost my 2013 MacBook Air, so I needed to find a replacement. My home setup is a Trashcan Mac Pro with two 27-inch monitors, which has been and continues to be a great setup for my work. My mobile needs were not that extensive, so I started thinking, gee, maybe I can try going iPad only. So the search began. I owned a 9.7-inch iPad Pro, so I started there. I tried out a few keyboard folio cases and external keyboards to see what would work well for me. I settled on a little keyboard from Logitech called keys to go That works very well for me, but I'm not very picky on the keyboard I use. I can pretty much acclimate to any keyboard. So part of the process, of course, includes software. My day-to-day work isn't anything too demanding like audio, video recording, or heavy graphics work. It's mostly around SQL queries, terminal server access, and data work. And with a collection of apps, I got pretty close to being able to work remotely completely on an iPad. But just enough little things kept creeping up to make that not really a good long-term solution. So after buying several different keyboard folios, trying different apps, buying and returning that 12.9-inch iPad Pro, I came to the conclusion that I still needed a full laptop to be functional on the road. Enter the MacBook. Purchased early October, and with that middle upgrade option for the processor, then paired with my original 9.7-inch iPad Pro and the Logitech keyboard I have, and I have a great mobile setup that works really well and is easy to travel with. Then came that October 30 Apple event, and I again began to question everything. Would the new iPads turn the tables on my attempts to go iPad only? Would that new MacBook Air have been a better solution? And wow, did I ever want one of those new Mac Minis, even though I really had no need or use for one, but I'm sure I can come up with something if I try hard enough. I had a week-long trip coming up, and I had just recently gotten all the apps set up on the MacBook and my companion apps on the 9.7-inch iPad, So a week on the road away from my home setup would be a great way to test all of that out. Well, it went flawlessly, and I was very happy with the setup. I accomplished everything I needed to do with a very lightweight travel setup that included a USB-C battery bank that could recharge the MacBook completely and still had a little extra power for the iPhone X and my 9.7-inch iPad Pro, a Samsung T5 1TB external SSD for those larger files I needed, and to hold with Windows VMs that actually run pretty well on an external SSD on the MacBook. Well, now it's late November, and here I sit typing and recording this little review completely on my brand new 11-inch iPad Pro. Still keeping the MacBook, but I upgraded the iPad, and it's a great device. 
The Face ID works flawlessly on it, so much better than on the iPhone X. The screen is a great size. It's not too large, but it's noticeably and comfortably larger than the 9.7-inch iPad. My little Logitech keyboard still works great, and I can even record audio directly to the iPad using the blue Snowball mic attached to that same USB-C adapter I have for the MacBook. It also includes the HDMI output, so I can take the iPad screen and throw it to another monitor or a TV, which opens up some interesting options for other workflows there. In the near future, I will be looking at the Luna display to be able to use the 11-inch iPad Pro as an additional display for my MacBook, but I've been happy using it as a separate device in conjunction with the MacBook so far. I must also admit that I'm within that two-week return period, and before leaving for Thanksgiving, there's a chance I'll trade up to the new 12.9-inch, as with that smaller bezel, it might be more acceptable size for my needs than the previous models, and any excuse to visit the Apple Store I'm going to take. So that's my story about what I'm using for my workflows and my equipment. I hope you enjoyed it. Happy holidays, all. Well, I have no idea whether Troy ended up swapping out his iPad, even though it is after Thanksgiving, but uh, we will find out perhaps in his next installment. Well, I've always had Thanksgiving dinner at my house. Since 1983, when I got a new house, my mother walked in and said, Thanksgiving will be here from now on. But this year, since our house was still under construction after five months, by the way, it is actually finally done, Lindsay and Nolan agreed to take over Thanksgiving this year. We still did the turkey and the ham and the stuffing and the cranberry chutney, but we carted it all down there for the feast. Lindsay started to think about the timing of all the different things that had to be done to make the meal a success, and she said, we should mind map this. I thought that was a weird idea to use a mind map since, you know, everything was going to be pretty much sequential. But she explained why it was the right tool for the job. She said, you know how in your presentation you explained that mind maps are a great way to get ideas down that are all jumbled up and then organize them later? Well, she went on to point out that she knew she had these 12 things to cook, but didn't know in what order they would need to go into the oven and the barbecue in order to make it all work. She opened up iThoughts from Toketaware and just started dropping in nodes for each food item. Then she started figuring out the times for each item, like when did she need to preheat the barbecue for the turkey or pull the turkey out. This left her with three levels. The top level was the food item, then the time, then to what to do to the food item. After she was done putting all of that together, it was time to reorganize it into a completely different format. She copied and then pasted all of the nodes right back into the same mind map. So that left the left side in the original method, while the right side started with the times, then what had to happen at that time. It was easy then to rearrange the nodes to be in order by time. This was going to be the new master by which things would actually be executed. As she executed each step, she tapped on the node and changed its color to black, and I thought automatically switched the text to white so you could still read it. Now, personally, I wouldn't have picked black, but it really worked well for her. I love that my daughter is a geek. I love that she thinks of things very differently than I do, but I love most of all that she actually listens to my technical jibber-jabber, and she learns from me and then improves on what she learns. I was pretty excited to order the new iPad Pro when it was announced. I've mentioned a few times that I have the 12.9-inch and the 9.7-inch, and I was curious about what they would do with the form factors and what model I would choose. When they made the 12.9-inch screen come in a smaller form factor, I was sold. It's possible I could have loved the 11-inch, but I couldn't see giving up all that glorious screen real estate. 
Now, I like to have my iPad sit up at an angle for watching videos, and occasionally I would type on them, so the smart keyboard folio seemed like a good purchase as well. And then in a weak moment, with no reason other than curiosity, I had them throw in a pencil. Now, you've read all of the hot off the presses reviews, so I thought I'd wait a while to see how the new iPad Pro feels after a few weeks. My point of view will be coming from the second generation 12.9 inch iPad Pro to the third generation. I'm going to start by talking about the iPad and then pencil, but to be honest, the star of the show is the smart folio keyboard, which I'll talk about last. The big thing everyone is talking about with the new iPads Pro is how wicked fast they are. The Geekbench scores are higher than most Macs, and it has everyone in a big tizzy about it. Apple says they're faster than 92% of PCs shipped in the last year. When I bought the new iPad Pro, I figured it would be a huge improvement over my second generation iPad Pro in terms of speed. I thought my, you know, my hair was going to blow back at how fast it was. I might even need a neck brace because of the acceleration. Then I realized, what do I do that actually stresses the processor speed of the second generation iPad Pro? Apps already launch quickly. High resolution video plays back just fine. When I type using the on-screen keyboard, the little animations show my typing exactly as fast as I type. Swiping left and right to change apps has always been as fast as I'm swiping. So I started trying to come up with a way to measure the speed difference because it wasn't inherently obvious to me. I don't do much video editing, but I brought in some clips into iMovie on both iPads and I did the same edits and exported to the same format. Was it a big video, but it took a few minutes to export and the two iPads finished it in about the same length of time. I tried doing a Gaussian blur on complex, multi-layered sample image documents from an Affinity Photo, but both iPads Pro rendered the images instantly. I guess that's a testament to Affinity Photo's uh, algorithms and how well-tuned the app is to the iPad interface. If photo editing wasn't going to tax the machines, how about audio? I'd heard that compressing audio files using the digital audio workstation software called Ferrite for iOS takes a while, so I finally broke down and bought it. I'd been playing around with the free version on and off for a long time, so I stopped procrastinating and I finally gave them the $30. I'll give you some impressions of Ferrite later, but it did give me an opportunity to test the speed of the two iPads. Exporting a one-hour uncompressed 600 megabyte stereo recording down to an MP3 took around three minutes on the new iPad and around three and a half minutes on the old one. I don't know about you, but 30 seconds faster for an extra $1,000? I guess if you do it all the time and you're being paid by the hour, it would be worth it. If you have a really old iPad, maybe the new new A12 Bionic will blow your socks off, but if you have any model iPad Pro, I'm not sure speed is a good excuse to upgrade for normal folks. I know, everybody else is excited about it, and if you can think of some tests I could run, I'm all ears. I do have some observations other than speed. Face ID is, as expected, positively delightful. Even though I have the perfect finger dampness to make Touch ID work consistently, Face ID is so much faster, especially on the new iPad Pro. Goopy fingers, wet fingers, fingers that are too dry, none of these are a problem when you have Face ID. Using Face ID with one password and the tight integration in iOS 12 is simply dreamy. The new third-generation iPads Pro also have a very small uh, bevel around the edge. It's quite natural to grab the iPad on the left bezel when you pick it up. This puts your thumb perfectly over the Face ID sensor. You can't actually see the sensor, so you're going to wonder why the iPad isn't responding to your face. 
But clearly, Apple engineers did the exact same thing when they picked it up, because two on-screen indications will come up to alert you. When you first try to use Face ID with your thumb obscuring the sensor, you get a little bouncy arrow pointing at the camera, and across the top it will show camera covered. Basically, they're saying, hey, moron, take your finger off the camera. Anyway, it seems to me maybe they could have moved the camera to a position where our thumbs wouldn't cover it automatically. Wouldn't that be a better way to do it? I mean, I, I, I should obviously, I don't know anything about how this design was done and probably making it work in all four, four orientations was a higher priority, but it does seem funny to have that little error that comes up that they knew you were going to do it. It kind of reminds me of this piece of furniture Steve assembled recently. After hours and hours of work, he realized, oh no, they didn't give him enough shelf pegs. He was distraught, as you can imagine. You've all been there, right? Well, I looked in the giant box and I saw an orange piece of paper that said, look at the foam to see if the parts are stuck to it. Sure enough, the little pegs were in a plastic bag that had inadvertently gotten stuck to the foam. Instead of redesigning the packaging so the problem wouldn't occur in the first place, Every single box by that manufacturer has to have a piece of paper put inside it. I'm going to think of that little paper sign every time I put my finger over the Face ID sensor. Now, I am delighted that the new iPad Pro uses USB-C. You might be like Sandy in our Slack group uh, over at podfeet.com slack, who has invested in a lot of lightning cables and was a little annoyed she'd have to start buying USB-C cables. But I've noticed those who have already bought another USB-C device, like one of the newer MacBooks, have all said, wow, this is awesome that it's USB-C because I already have USB-C cables. On my trip to Lindsay's for Thanksgiving, I only had to bring one cable and the MacBook Pro charger for both devices. When I wanted top performance for my Luna display to drive my iPad as a secondary display while I was on the road, I was able to use the same USB-C to USB-C cable to connect the two. I think after you get one USB-C device, you're going to want everything to be USB-C. Well, the pencil and the way it charges now is good in the sense of how dumb was it before? I took a photo of the two iPads side by side, the old one with its pencil sticking out of the side, looking like Steve Martin with the arrow through his head, and the new one with the pencil stuck to the top with surprisingly strong magnets. You know, this change is sort of like how it feels good to stop hitting your head against the wall. Like I said up front, I didn't need a pencil, but I've been having a little bit of fun drawing and then double tapping the flat side to get to the eraser. It works great in notability, by the way, so that's going to be fun to use in the future. Well, when I bought the original iPads Pro, I got them with this smart keyboard. I like them well enough. The smart keyboard is thin and light, and typing on the keyboard was passable when you really needed it. Folding and unfolding that smart keyboard was a bit of an origami effort, if Helma will forgive me the, the analogy there. And um, the, the smart keyboard didn't cover the back of the iPad. I'm not sure why, but I never managed to scuff up the backs of my iPads, maybe because they had to replace them so often there were never scratches. Didn't have them long enough. Anyway, I can't say I'm a huge fan of the smart keyboard since I did have four or five of the keyboards fail on me over the years. By the way, the one I have now, I think it's failing too. That's on the old one. Well, the new iPads Pro have a newly designed keyboard called the Smart Keyboard Folio. There's a lot to like about the keyboard folio, but the first thing I noticed was how heavy it is. It covers both the screen and the back, which is a good thing, especially with that camera bump that you want to protect. But the new iPad Pro is so very light. It weighs 7.5% less than the second generation, 
and yet you slap the keyboard folio on it, and it actually weighs a tiny smidge more than the old model with its smart keyboard. We're definitely splitting ounces here. My point is you may be hearing people talk about how light the new iPad Pro is, but if you use the smart keyboard folio, it weighs about the same as the old one. Wait aside, I find the folio keyboard itself positively delightful. It's almost clicky, even though it looks pretty, pretty similar to the old keyboard. It's stable, and I love typing on it. I don't dislike the MacBook Pro keyboard, but I'm finding myself actually choosing to use the iPad Pro for real writing, where with the old one, I would immediately set it aside for the Mac. The keyboard folds in a much more user-friendly way with no origami talents required. It has two angles for viewing, one of which is quite pleasing. The other one is so straight up that at first I thought it was designed for airline travel and coach class was the only thing I could use it, think you would use it for, but I figured out another use. If you have it at the normal angle, uh, when you're doing a FaceTime video, you don't look right into the camera. But if you put it up at that sharp angle, it actually looks much better in FaceTime. So it does have real value. Now, the weird thing about folding up the new keyboard folio is when you fold it up and you want to use the iPad as a tablet lying flat, when you fold it that way, the keys are then on the back. So if you lift it up to carry it around like that, you're kind of smashing the keys. It doesn't appear to mess anything up, but it just feels kind of weird to be holding it and clicking the keys. Well, the bottom line is that if you have any generation of iPad Pro, I'm not sure you'll be able to justify the purchase of the new model based on speed. I've challenged a few people lately on their public statements about the speed, notably Jeff Gamut and Dave Ginsburg, and when challenged, they both said they haven't actually been able to measure a speed increase. Jeff did say that scrolling looked better and faster to him on the new iPad Pro, but that it was the 120 hertz refresh rate on the newest one that he didn't have on his older one. However, if having a bigger screen in the same size with the 11-inch or having a smaller device with the same glorious 12.9-inch screen is exciting to you, then definitely go for it. If you need a keyboard that's much better than the old Smart Keyboard, then I can highly recommend the new Smart Keyboard Folio. I have to say, with that great new keyboard, it's become more and more of a productivity machine for me. Well, the holiday shopping season is fully upon us. We've done our uh, Black Friday. You're listening to this probably on Cyber Monday. But I know you're going to keep shopping at Amazon. And um, maybe you want to start looking at some of the things I've talked about on the show. If you look, for example, Troy Shimkus talked about his Logitech keyboard. And he talked about his little USB-C adapter. If you look at those links uh, in, in his blog post there, he's got links to my affiliate links. That means if you buy those things through the affiliate links, a small percentage of what you spend will actually go to help the show. It's a little bit extra work to do it that way, but if you hear about things on the show and you want to help us out, go to podfeet.com slash Amazon and start your search there. If you do that, anything you go do by during that immediate session will go to help the show. I really appreciate everybody who makes that extra effort. And if that's too hard, there's a way easier way to support the show. You can go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and just sign up to give like a dollar a week to the show. Did you learn a dollar a week's worth of stuff or did you get a dollar a week worth of entertainment out? Why don't you head over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and sign up that way. And then you don't even have to remember to use the Amazon affiliate links. Anyway, I appreciate you even if you're just listening and not supporting the show financially. It's you guys listening and enjoying the content that really means the most to me. 
it's not normally that time of the week, but it is that time of the week. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchat. He has graciously agreed to come in and help give us some content because uh, I was busy eating turkey and drinking wine. Thank you, Bart. You're most welcome. And one week's worth of Security Bits is easier to do than two weeks' worth. So, you know, works for me. <laughs> there you go. I really appreciate it. I uh, spent some quality time with uh, Mr. Forbes and uh, got to lay around and uh, drink wine, like I said, and we had a good time. So I sure appreciate it. And I you know, can't let the show down, though, right? Yeah, well, I'm glad you had a good time. I mean, that's, you know, that's what Thanksgiving is for. We don't have it over here, but it would be nice if we did, you know, a bit of family time. Yeah, yeah. It's family without the stress of presents. So that's kind of oh. nice. <laughs> now, that is a rarity. Yeah, like yeah, that. it's just yeah. glut- gluttony mostly is what. Do you know Belgium used to be like that at Christmas until it all got commercialized because Saint Nicholas came on the sixth of December for the present bit, which, ah. which meant that at Christmas he didn't get presents. But then American television arrived, and then Belgian kids sort of felt they should have two lots of presents. I'm sorry. Anyway, anyway, well, what has happened in the last week in the security world? Um, well, we have no security mediums, so we get to jump straight into notable security updates, but there's plenty of those. So Adobe issued an emergency patch for a critical bug in Flash, cross-browser jobby, so everyone gets to play along. Um, Mac people win. Flash people. is still a thing? It's not quite dead yet. You can still yet. get Flash? <laughs> not quite dead yet. <laughs> is it 20, 2020, I think, is the end of the road? I mean, the, the whole roadmap is out, so I think, I think we still have another year and a little bit of, of Flash shenanigans to go. Hopefully well. less and less people have it installed, though. So hopefully this is less right, and less right. important. Um, Microsoft issued an emergency patch for Skype for Business. For those few people on the planet still using it, that is another product that is on a death march and uh, being rolled Skype up. Skype into- for Business or Skype Skype? Skype for Business, which is a completely separate product and has no co- no shared code base or anything with Skype because it's Microsoft. Oh, oh okay. It was Link, L-Y-N-C. And they decided yeah. under a bomber that everything should be branded the same, even if it was completely different. So Exchange became OneDrive for business and Link became Skype for business, just to confuse everyone because there's oh, no okay. interoperability, right? If you have an account on Skype for business with the same username as a Skype account, not the same thing. Good luck to you trying to call, you know, you on Skype from my Skype for business account. You know, it's just utterly confusing and stupid. Thankfully, I'm actually glad you, you brought it up was... Um uh, Chris Ashley on the SMR podcast was re- talking about he went to a, a Microsoft uh, conference and he said that, uh, you know, Skype is dead. They're discontinuing Skype. And I've been meaning to ask him what he was talking about, but it was a business conversation. So that's by why. Yeah. So Skype for Business is being, as, as a standalone product, Skype for Business is being ended as, as a client. But the actual protocol, so the actual functionality isn't going anywhere. It's being put into Microsoft Teams. Right, right. Okay. So that's how they're doing it. Yeah, which is a really sensible place for it to be. And Teams already has all that functionality. So now they're just sort of mopping up. And everyone who has an Office 365 account, you're just getting continuous notifications. By the by, Skype for Business is nearly dead. No, no, seriously, it's almost gone. (laughs) So, yeah, I I won't cry for it. It's a terrible, terrible product. But Teams is wonderful. So, uh, you know, that's good. Uh, There is also one of those important updates. Um... It's AMP is one of these sort of unofficial official standards on top of the web. Can't remember if it's Facebook's one or Google's one, but it's one of these. I ones. thought it was Google. I thought it was just called Google AMP. 
That's probably it then, yeah, because Facebook has their own one of these too. It's basically, it's like a, a subset of your website so it can be easily sucked into the social media site. So in this case, it's, it's easily sucked into Facebook. Uh, so a lot of people run a plugin to do that on WordPress. And that plugin, unfortunately, had a really nasty vulnerability, which has been patched. But of course, that means all the bad guys know exactly how to exploit it now. So if you're running the AMP plugin and haven't updated yourself, you really, really should do so extremely promptly. Yikes. And then we round back to Redmond again. Um, Microsoft have had to pull some patches uh, because they were causing the application to crash. Uh, this patches is for to the OS? or Oh, for Office. For Office, oh. yeah. Okay. Uh, now, this is kind of an interesting one. So the patches they pulled weren't security updates. They were updates to do with the Japanese calendar because the Japanese calendar is measured by um, years the emperor has been on the throne. And apparently they had an abdication in a different emperor or something like that. I didn't quite remember the details. <laughs> and so it's basically they had, to, they had to update the calendar to reflect this fact. And Microsoft managed to introduce a nasty bug that caused Office to crash. Not just for Japanese people, just caused Office to crash. Um, so if you're using the Office 365 version of Office, Microsoft automatically pulled it back for you. But if you're using the perpetual license, you have to pull the updates back yourself. So if you're still doing things the old way and your office keeps crashing, have a read of the link in the show notes. It'll tell you the two KBs to uninstall and then you should be fine. Oh, good grief. Steve's uh, mom and dad are on a, uh, on a standalone license or standalone licenses. And just last week they installed a patch. Well, Steve walked him through how to do it. The thing is that Microsoft unpublished the patch. So there's every likelihood they never got it. Okay, so just don't mention it. But I know this in the back of my head, if they are getting crashes, they would have called us by now if they had. His precisely, precisely. So basically, the, the big thing is, yeah, so Microsoft pulled the patch as soon as they realized it was a nasty problem. So depending on you know how often your machine checks in with Microsoft and how quickly you actually install the updates, you may never have gotten them. But if, you're, if your office has just become all crashy all of a sudden, this might be why. Okay. All right. Good to know. In terms of notable news, just two stories made the grade. Um, Firefox have integrated their new Firefox monitor service, so it's now right in the browser. So the first time you use Firefox to browse to a website that's had a known breach, Firefox will put up a little notice to tell you the fact that you know this site was breached. Uh, hmm. But it won't keep doing it. So it's not it's not going to be a constant spam where every time you go to Yahoo forevermore, it'll keep telling you, <laughs> by the way, these guys lost like all of the accounts. Um, but so what does it what does it tell you? Does it just say this site has been breached? And wouldn't it be easier to say the sites that haven't been breached? <laughs> arguably, arguably, um, it, it's basically it's integrating the the, the it's sort of the, the same. I mean, ultimately, all this stuff is the same data that's behind um, Watchtower and One Password. It's all the pwn to own database. Oh, okay. Or have oh, okay. I, sorry, have okay. I been pwned database? Okay, um, right, right, right. So it's just another way. So instead of you having to go find the information, the information is being proactively presented to you as you visit the site, which is, you know, it, it's good, right? The data's there. You may as well integrate it into the browser and present it at exactly yeah, the moment yeah. in time that it matters. Yeah, so, that is a good idea. Yeah. So again... Uh, I was j- just reading the way it says it. Uh, it will read something like, Quote, more than X number of email accounts from example.domain were compromised in 2018. Check Firefox Monitor to see if yours is at risk. I hadn't heard of Firefox Monitor. 
We mentioned it a few weeks ago when it was launched. It's quite recent. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's basically another way into the Have I Been Pwned database. So you can basically enter in your email address and it'll go off and tell you if, you've, if you're in trouble or not. Which is, so I know, wonder useful. whether you have to try to log in to get that. Pardon? You, uh, you must have to try to sign in in order to get that message. Uh, I, I just went to Yahoo.com and didn't get, you know, 8 million people had been, uh, been uh, pwned. I'm not sure the details. I did get a screenshot from a friend of mine when it happened for the first time because he he hadn't realized this was a new feature, and he was like, "Oh wow, look what Firefox just started doing!" So, but it wasn't yeah. on Yahoo. I don't. I can't remember what site that was on. All right, I'm logging into my Flickr account, which is a Yahoo account, just to see if I get anything. Yes, that all looks good. Sure, scroll to continue. I accept whatever those conditions you just told me, and no, I did not get anything on that. I wonder if I'm in one of those conditions where when I log out, it's going to do the update that this came in with. That has been known to happen to me with Firefox because it's auto update yeah. doesn't happen. Yep, to the there it is, downloading an update. Yeah. <laughs> and this it. is just in the very latest Firefox. Okay, okay. Um, and then Mark Zuckerberg tried to tackle the growing criticism of Google. So he sort of released a, a missive sort of outlining what uh, Facebook have been doing and what Facebook are now be continuing to do going forward. So they're sort of, they're getting proactive with AI is how, is how they're sort of spinning it. But basically, they're promising to try to do a better job of um, managing their platform so it doesn't get abused. Um, they're going to also increase their appeals process because obviously the danger of becoming more proactive is that you have false positives. So it's actually... Oh, right. It's actually reassuring to see them bolster both sides of that equation to basically say, yes, we're going to start blocking more stuff and also we're going to make a better appeals process if we get it wrong. So that's probably the wisest thing they can do, really. Um, I don't envy them, um, but they have all the money on the world, so I don't feel that sorry <laughs> for them either. You know, Great yeah, power, he's been, great responsibility, uh, etc. He's been getting attacked lately quite a bit. He was attacked by Tim Cook, I guess. Yeah, and Tim Cook has a much easier time because Tim Cook's business model is aligned with user interest, whereas ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter how much he spins it, Mark Zuckerberg's isn't. And that's- Well, you remember they, they asked him, what would you do if you were in his situation? His answer was, I wouldn't be in his situation. And I'm with Tim Cook on this. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I don't... I, I You know, I, choose to use Facebook if you want. I don't really care, but I just I just don't want to do it because I don't like the incentives and it's, you know... I prefer to buy stuff, and I prefer Apple's incentives. It's you know, it's it's choice of business model. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we have quite a bit of suggested reading, and quite a few of them have a little star next to them. So um, there's a nice article from Brian Krebs, arguably a little bit too late, actually. But well, no, actually, no. Sorry, good Black Friday was yesterday, so I guess just on time. How to shop online like a security pro. I mean, it's not earth-shattering mm. stuff, but it's a nice short little collection of you know, here's the things to watch out for arguably of more use to pass on to your relatives than for our listeners here directly, but that's still useful. Okay. Uh, And then there's a very good article from Naked Security explaining the passwordless web, as it's being called. So this is these new protocols like um, web Authn and stuff that we talked about a few months ago. Yeah. Uh, because people have a lot of misconceptions about how using Face ID in theory to log into websites or how to use fingerprints to log into websites. You know, there's misinterpretation, you know, misunderstandings like, 
but doesn't that mean that my fingerprint has now gone to Facebook or whatever and I can't change my finger? It's like, actually, no, mm. that's not how it works. And the article goes through and explains very... Naked Security are really good at this. Um, they, they, they manage to explain complex topics in a human-friendly way, and I love them for it, which is why they get uh, quoted so often in this segment. Uh, so it's just a really nice article that just lays it out very clearly, very well. And any, if anyone's wondering how well this stuff works, this is a really good way to learn. Yeah, this this be interesting to see how that's adopted. I know I've just started to run into people who just adamantly will not do two-factor authentication because they tried it once. And it was terrible and, you know, back then. And they got burned, and and now they won't do it. And now it's like, nope, 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 never, never change. And uh, people who you would think would know better saying, no, I'm not going to do face ID. No, you know, my fingerprint works, and I'm, I'm not going to do that insecure thing of, of face ID. Well, yeah, no, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you look at some facts, <laughs> some reality, some measurables. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, hopefully. this is a really good explanation of uh, FIDO2 and WebAuthn and these kind of things. And hopefully they'll begin to take off um, and we get to do more without passwords, which would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those of us who, who believe in being on the forefront of the security stuff will be able to say, well, here we are not typing in passwords. Go ahead. Keep doing your passwords. Right. It's kind of nice, actually, to be getting to a situation where stuff that's more secure is also more user friendly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like like Face ID to Touch ID, right? Yeah, exactly, and and password manager than not using a password manager. Yeah, As, especially you know if if you end up with Max with Touch ID and stuff like that, that really starts to push the boat out to the next level. Like that's that's pretty cool. Right, right. Now this is unusual. We're moving into notable breaches and privacy violations, and the very first story is a "Don't set your hair on fire" story. Which is an unusual what? combination. Oh, yeah, come usually on. these are the yeah, light your hair on fire. <laughs> um, so Amazon did the right thing. So Amazon discovered that there was a problem on the configuration of one of their servers, which meant that in theory, if someone had known about it, they could have accessed some information about customers, probably the most sensitive piece of which was the email addresses. The danger here being phishing rather than anything more serious. So it wasn't a password breach. It wasn't a payment method breach, nothing like that. And in fact, it wasn't really an actual breach in the sense of the bad guys got stuff. It was a breach in the sense of we basically, they did the digital equivalent of leaving the house with the back door unlocked, but it appears that no one came around to test it. Oh, that's good. And Amazon did the right thing. Well, I think, I'm not sure they had much choice really under GDPR because GDPR considers <laughs> a data breach to be leaving the back door unlocked. It doesn't matter if someone comes through, it's still a data breach. Right, um, right. But they proactively notified people. And so if you haven't received an email from Amazon, you're not affected by this. And even if you have received an email from Amazon, you're not really affected very much. But of course, no one really goes beyond the headlines. So everyone <laughs> saw Amazon data breach and went, ooga, ooga, panic, panic, panic. It's like, no, no. No, read the fine print here. This is not a disaster area. Unfortunately, That's the rest excellent. of the stories in this news. section are disaster areas. Oh, <laughs> you're just setting us up for a fall, huh? Oh, no, but let's get, you know, it's nice to get one good news story in here. Um, there you go. So security researchers discovered a misconfigured database server uh, for a company who sell an SMS gateway service to large corporations. 
So if you're using SMS-based two-factor authentication, the company who you're two-factoring or two-factor authoring into, they don't run SMS gateways. They contract that out to someone, right? You buy four million SMS messages from some sort of service provider. And you kind of assume they're not going to do something stupid like leave an open database with no password sitting on the public internet where people can watch in real time as all of the SMS messages go by. Including Are the you serious? Oh, yes, I'm serious. Now, the, the oh, hole has geez. now been closed. Um, but until it was closed, these things were just sitting there out in the open. And so this was a, a company that, that other companies hire to manage their two-factor auth, which means no, no, we don't even know. No, to two-factor auth, to manage their SMS sending. Okay. But so it isn't like we can say, oh, Yahoo had this happen to them. It's everybody that contracted this company to handle the SMS. Yes. And it's all sort of stuff that went out over SMS. So it's not only two-factor Roth. It's anything that was automatically sent over SMS. It just so happens that an awful lot of what goes out over SMS is two-factor Roth codes these days. Or sorry. Right. Or or a lot of SMS from a website, right? I mean, there's obviously SMS from phone to phone, but this is SMS from service to phone. Yeah, not not. So you know, I thought I remembered reading somewhere that two-factor authentication wasn't secure over SMS. I I remember something about that. Yeah, it's like the National Institute of Standards or something. Something in something. Yeah. 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 The the main reason I put a star next to this to my banks. The reason I put a star next to this one is precisely so you could say that. (laughs) This is just another reason. Um, and unfortunately, um, I thought for a moment as I was reading my news feed that it, I was just reading a repeat of last week's story about the U.S. Postal Service and their informed delivery. Turns out they have a different service that they offer to people who buy bulk mail delivery from them. You can basically watch as your bulk mail gets sent around. And unfortunately, they didn't really secure that system very well. So the U.S. Postal Service basically exposed the data of 60 million of their users. So what data would that be that they lost? Um, I mean, because your address is already public record, essentially. Account details of 60 million other users. And in some cases, hmm. to modify account details on their behalf. And the really annoying thing is that they were informed about it a year ago and didn't bother their backsides fixing it until Brian Krebs went public with it. Oh, you're kidding me. Yes. Uh, was it usernames and passwords? Uh, didn't see that in here. Um, oh, it does not appear UPS uh, USPS account passwords were exposed via this API, although Krebs and security conducted a very brief and limited review of the APIs. Yeah, so hmm. basically, informed visibility is the name of this service, and it's kind of the opposite of informed delivery. So it's not from the point of view of the recipient, it's from the point of view of the sender. So that if you oh, pay okay. the US Postal Service to send 50 million flyers, you can watch your flyers zoom all around the US hmm. and see how well you're spamming people. So is this in the list of you can't do anything about it, just sit there and be angry? Uh I'm not 100% sure because I don't, I'm not an American. So when it comes to these kind of things, I just sort of say, here's the link. Here, yeah. Here's something I know, right? Okay. Yeah, which is why it's in suggested reading, right? Um, you know, some of these things, like, you just can't really chase down all the way. Uh, yeah. We have 
we have some other stories I'm going to skip over, but we have uh, a star down in opinion and analysis. So every year, at this time of year, Sophos release a report basically about... They, they title it for the next year. So they call it the Threat Report for 2019, which hmm, is basically so a summary of where we stand as 2019 is about to dawn. So basically today, what are the worst problems? And that's probably what you're going to spend 2019 fighting against. Sort of Gosh, this sounds like fun reading, Bart. I better get on that one right away. To be honest, it is. But Really? It, well, yeah, because it's really good to know what the bad guys are up to, because then you can be forearmed. Like, when you get stuff in your inbox pretending to know your password and trying to extort you for cryptocurrency, you can go, yeah, I know this. Sut off, you know? It, being informed about what the bad guys are up to and what's garbage and what's real is actually quite empowering. Uh, so, you don't have to read the whole report, though. Uh, thankfully, the good people at Sophos also released, like, snippets in sort of little short summary format. So there's two of them out already, and I'm sure more will come out over the next few days. Uh, so if you want a really quick summary of the cyber criminal techniques currently in use, then that's the first one. And then the second one they give a nice little summary of is mobile and IoT attacks. And so these are nice little short articles that basically just give you like the executive summary from a particular point of view of the report. And if you really feel like it, by all means, read the whole report. But these little executive summaries are kind of nice. I think I'll have uh, just wait till Joe LaGreca reads it and then have him tell me what it means when I when I see him at CES in January. <laughs> you could do that, but honestly, these summaries are nice and short. Like you know, five minute scan through each of them will tell you everything you need to know, really. And you just sort of. I'm sorry, but this this really sounds to me like like sitting down re- reading a list of diseases you might get next year. <laughs> you know, it no, it's really no. depressing. I know. I, I wouldn't look at it that way. Um, I would okay. certainly look at it from the point of view of. You know what do we know? What do we know? Yeah, and like I say, if you get into your inbox, like the classic example is is those scams that caught a couple of our friends recently, where they were using just a random password of yours from a data breach to scare you into thinking they know more than they know. If you know about that, oh, it's yeah. not scary at all. It's just laughable. If okay. you don't know about okay. that, it's petrifying. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. So it's it's good to know what they're up to because. You know, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your friends. And if you know what you're running from and your friends have no idea what they're running from, you're still better off. There you go. But it's a lot of this stuff that uh, regular mortals don't have any ability to defend themselves against? Or is this... No, to be, no it's, it, I wasn't particularly depressed reading it. I was like, oh, okay, okay. noted. Okay. Uh, and then the last thing I gave a star to is, of all places, in Propeller Beanie, just because it was fascinating. Mm. So this is in Propeller Beanie, right? So this means that this is not in the this stuff is going to destroy your life today section. This is in the scientists are doing some really interesting science. And in theory, this cool thing is now possible. These are not practical attacks, but it is interesting. So scientists realized that fingerprint scanners don't actually record your full fingerprint, right? They basically take snapshots of your fingerprint and sort of the key features and use those to make a a sort of a a summary version, a a highlights version of your fingerprint. Right. And there's actually quite a lot in common. There's a lot of features that are common to many, many humans. And so they decided to try turn it on its back, to sort of turn it around and see if they could create a fingerprint that used as many as possible of the most generic features to basically create a master key fingerprint. 
a totally average oh. fingerprint that's so average that it gets in about half the time. That's terrible, though. <laughs> right, but this isn't a practical attack, right? This is cool scientific research. That's why it's down in propeller oh, okay. meeting territory, right? It, it, it's like... I mean, it's like using the, the, the 3D printing something to get by Touch ID. Okay, great, it's possible. No, this is not the okay. end of the world. No, this is not set your hair on fire time, right? This is cool science, oh, okay. which is why it's in a propeller okay. beanie. <laughs> it sounded like the end of this was going to be, and now your phone is insecure. See no. face ID. Okay. No, because That's nothing I thought is perfectly secure, right? If you assume that anything is 100% secure, well, then you're wrong. Nothing is. Right, right. So th- this is just interesting science. It's it's like, you know, using speakers to break through air gaps and stuff. Yeah, it's theoretically possible. No, it's not a risk to you in your day-to-day life. Yeah, so that's, I say, propeller beanie okay. is nerdy fun, not panic time. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, now, the closest I was able to find to a palate cleanser is fascinating, not entirely upbeat. Um, <laughs> okay. It's basically a story about the science of making apps engaging which is a euphemism for the science of making apps addictive. So it's the people who study why it is we are, you know, who study making things unputdownable. It's it's interesting. It's very interesting. You would think that that would be research people would want to buy so they could use it. Yeah, so it's kind of good to see The Economist give us mere mortals a look into this stuff because you're right this is the kind of knowledge that is very much cherished by the tech companies so it's good to see a bit of a a bit of a discussion of it for the um, regular joe soaps like us (laughs) joe soaps oh is that not a phrase over there joe soap no uh uh-uh generic person on the street ah okay john doe or i think there's like joe the plumber or something became a a, a big deal a while ago yeah, that was thanks to your elections. Right, right. It was an right. actual... Well, he wasn't actually a plumber. I don't think his name was actually Joe either, which is kind of ironic, but yeah, anyway. Other than that. The science is called behaviorism, by the way. Okay. And so it, it's, as I say, it's an interesting read, and The Economist, well, they do good stuff. Right, right. Oh, this was in The Economist. It says 1843 magazine. Which is by, yeah, which is by The Economist. Oh, oh, I did not know that. No, neither did I until I actually clicked all the way through and I saw the giant big red square box with the white writing in it. I was like, oh, I recognize uh, that logo. Okay, the first thing I do on sites is... magazine of ideas, lifestyle and culture. Look at that. First thing I do when I hit sites that have too much junk on them is I hit reader view mode, so I never saw that. Oh, but look at the, the uh, favicon shows it, so there we go. Yes. All right. Well, this was fun. Thanks again for uh, for sneaking in here and giving us a little uh, little update. So uh, I think we're back on next week too. I think we're back to normal next week, assuming yeah, assuming life goes right, assuming all goes well. Yes. All right. Cool. Well, we will talk to you again then. Indeed. And until then, stay patched and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. Maybe send in a recording yourself like Troy Shimkus has been doing. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. If you're interested in following me on Twitter, you can find me at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. 
Want to join our Slack group, which is even more exciting? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to join the live chat room? Podfeet.com slash chat. Want to try those Amazon affiliate links? Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.